Mark for jumping in at the very last minute last week. I uh, um, had a pretty uh, nice little something going on that I didn't want to share with anybody at all, although I probably shared it with my dear bride. Um, but uh, we were in a, a kind of a, a transition from Romans 3, 21 through 26. And I, I think, if it, you know, one of the things I've enjoyed doing is just this constant reading of this book. As we progress, you just keep reading it. And, and it just, this is such a wondrous book. But you, I was struck this week, and really it's the basis for this little detour, of the fact that, that Paul spends five verses pulling us into the, just the inner sanctuary of the triune God's work of redemption, what they actually do as is divinely revealed through the scriptures to transfer us from this domain of darkness to this kingdom of light. And I, I just don't, I know for me personally, you read these wondrous things and you, you get that wonderful sense of what God has done. But, but until you really begin to peel into that in its full depth with your eyes on what Christ has accomplished, I don't think we rightly allow ourselves to grab the magnitude of all of that. All right? And yet Paul in this wondrous book spends five verses on it. <laughs> and then he unpacks uh, uh, so many other areas with just uh, quite a lot of volume. You know, we saw the condition of humanity from Romans 1.18 through 3.20. Uh, we see these five verses. And then what we'll see going from here starting next week is he really begins to now give testimony to the fact that this is the way God has saved humanity from the very beginning. And he uses Abraham as, an, as the supreme example of that, right? In that Genesis 15 passage, for it was uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's that anchor verse. What we're doing this morning, and we began a couple of weeks ago, and I just it's just a little detour that I wanted to just kind of walk us through is there's this, there's this nucleus of what God has done in this text, justified us. Um, it, 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 that kind of is this wonderful, warm blanket of the life of the Christian. And I want to just share that a little bit with you, kind of picking up from last week of, you know, just, just what are we to do with what God has done? How is that going to impact our daily lives, kind of our, our inward lives, that inward person that Paul talks about? We'll, we'll, we'll read it again a little bit about this morning. Um, and there's no doubt Paul gives a great deal of instruction about what we are to do from a practical sanctification perspective, and we're going to get into that. But what, what really is to be held fast by the inner man, the inner person who has had these wondrous things done by God and then understood through the Word of God, right? And I just... I, I, I hope you guys don't mind. It's a little clunky because I like to read Spurgeon in his original language. And I'm not going to read this entire devotional, but for those of you who have not ran across the morning and evening devotional series of Spurgeon or the treasury of Scripture uh, or the, the, the treasury of David from Spurgeon, you really should add it to your library and you should add it in hardbound books so it can't ever disappear, right? They are treasure troves. 
I just want to pull little snippets out of this devotional from January 15th because I was right in the middle of this in my own heart. And here's Mr. Spurgeon just speaking to us from, from centuries ago. God promises, God's promises were never meant to be thrown aside as wasted paper. Right? So he's getting your attention right there. God means his promises. Right? They should be used. Nothing pleases our Lord, he says, better than to see his promises put into circulation. He loves to see his children bring them up to him and say, Lord, and he quotes 2 Samuel 7.25 and David's prayer of gratitude, do as thou hast said. We glorify God when we plead his promises. This, this, dear brothers and sisters, is why we have some of the most suffocating personal trials you can ever imagine, because they draw you to these promises. And I just pray that every one of us know where that, I met a little old lady, <laughs> Dr. Bob's beautiful little mom, who lived in a little old folks home, and she had found 101 promises that she had typed herself on a piece of paper, copied, and everybody that she encountered got one of those pieces of paper, right? Just a precious, precious heart, just like what Spurgeon's speaking to here. He says, faith lays hold upon the promise of pardon and does not delay, saying, this is a precious promise. I wonder if it be true, says Spurgeon, but it goes straight to the throne with it and pleads, Lord, here is the promise, do as thou hast said, is the theme he runs all the way through this devotional. Our Lord replies, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And his point is, God put it in the scriptures as a promise because it is God's decreed will to be a promise, right? He loves to hear the loud outcry of needy souls. And then he ends with, it is God's nature to keep his promises. Therefore, go at once to the throne and do as thou hast said on your heart. And the text that he pulls from is 2 Samuel 7, 24 and 5. I'll just read it for you. It's David's prayer of gratitude. And David says this in verse 24. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And this is the passage. And do as you have spoken. And I would imagine David, of all people, could hardly believe the promises that God has made to David and his throne and his line after the life that David lived but yet he believed it with all his heart and soul because it was God's word, not his life, to earn it or make it come about, right? So with that as a bit of an intro, let's, let's just pray and start looking at a few other areas along this same line. Father, we always want to come before you with our heart and our minds fixed upon our Lord Jesus Christ because you, Father, have first loved us so that we might have this love ever increasing and growing in our own hearts for all that our triune God has done to free us from a bondage that we not only could never free ourselves from but would never want to be freed of apart from your blessed work in our hearts. 
And so we just take this time to exalt you, Lord, and our triune God, for not only what they have done to justify us, to redeem us, but to now secure us in the promises of God. And we just want to praise you for that as we look across these scriptures to hear just a snippet of these promises you have made and the grandeur at which they rest. And we just pray these things in the most blessed name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, a little bit of a Bible study again this morning, and then we'll pick up with more of our kind of careful walk through Romans. But I, I talked about a couple of weeks ago a passage that I think is just stunning, and it's worth just memorizing or having earmarked in your Bible. But it's Hebrews 10:14. And it's a little bit Johannine in some ways in terms of the magnitude of what is said in such a simple and short set of words. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering, there's the whole cross right there, he has perfected, there's the entire work of that cross, upon sinners. He has perfected, right? Take that promise, because that, that is written in the blood of Christ right there. He has perfected for all time. See how when you take this sentence in sections, each section just makes you want to, I mean, you could go dive deep into each little section. For all time, those who are being sanctified. This progressive nature of our being conformed to Christ over the course of our life for the purposes of God. And I believe that that progressive nature of sanctification filled with trials and setbacks is to keep every one of us clinging to the promises of God that flow out of the cross of Christ. And part of that is to make sure as we have come to that cross and we have been justified by the work of Christ, we never feel the need to go back to that cross for that justification. It is a one-time thing that frees you, right? And it is your progressive sanctification that now begins your response to that work on that cross. And that is precisely why Paul unpacks the rest of this book the way he does. So there's two really key promises in there at a, at a minimum. One is uh, positionally and eternally, you're already perfected, right? Now, now that's just something to reach out and grab a hold of, that the mess of my sanctified life in God's eyes and his unfolding eternal decrees is already gone. I'm already perfected in Christ Jesus, right? The other one is we're being sanctified. That's a promise. He's not going to leave you to yourself in this process of sanctification. He's going to do it through Ephesians 2.10 for his glory and his praise, but he's going to finish what he started. And it is his sovereign decree, not because he couldn't do it another way, but because he chose it to be a progressive sanctification that takes place. A putting on and a putting off for a lifetime, right? So that we would continue as the church to show the power of Christ, the cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit day in and day out in our life as we encounter trials and we overcome those trials, as we get set back as we struggle with sin, as the body comes around that person with that struggle of sin. That's this living church with the living word, right? So Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4.16, just to affirm that and help us see that so clearly. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, here comes the promise, our inner self is being renewed Day by day. It is stated as fact because it is fact. He is renewing us day 
by day. And to us, it feels like, you know, we move forward, we move backwards. We move forward, we move backwards. But in God's economy, we're being sanctified, we're dealing with trials. We're being sanctified, but the trajectory of that is always being conformed to Christ, right? Each one of those trials, each one of those, each one of those victories over sin, right? The putting on and the putting off is all this conforming work of Christ that's renewing this inner man while the outer man is wasting away. And maybe no place better than when we get to it in Romans 7. If you look at Romans 7, 14 through 25, illustrates this, this tension that we feel in this life. But yet the glory of these promises that are manifested in the second part of this passage. Let me just read Romans 7, 14 through 25 for you. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, there's a lot to take in right there. It really kind of messes with our mind a little bit. Um, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do what I want. I'm sorry. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And the church say amen <laughs> every day, right? Try a 14-year-old at 62. <laughs> I promise it'll, it'll get you. A lovely little 14-year-old, but. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So Paul is giving us a bit of a mystery there that he will make clearer for us when we get to this section. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, he qualifies it. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Fascinating, isn't it? I don't think the church visible thinks of itself this way. And I think the denial of this leads us to a path that says, I kind of got it all. I got it all figured out. That's, this certainly isn't me anymore, right? What do you think that does to our sanctification, right? It's like the student that decides they know everything and they stop learning almost immediately, right? The sanctification is the progressive nature of our lives. And it is filled with these do what I don't want to do and don't do what I know I should do, Right? And there's no shortage of ink spilt on this passage, by the way, about those who think, well, this is certainly Paul before he was saved and, uh, or Paul after he was saved, reflecting on his sanctification. And I've read Martin Lloyd-Jones and John James Montgomery Boyce, and they have very different views of this to show how difficult it is to exegete this passage. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law. That when I do right, evil lies close at hand. Anybody think of Genesis 4? So here comes that inner man again. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And how do we delight in the law of God in the inner man? We consume the word of God in the inner man. We absolutely sit at the banquet of the Word of God every opportunity we can for the purpose of applying it to our understanding of what God has done and the sanctification of the work the Holy Spirit is doing in us and through us, right? That's really what Paul turns us to here. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind 
and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And Paul comes to the proper conclusion in order to exalt the work of Christ. Wretched man that I am. Nothing exalts Christ and his finished work on our behalf than the honest realization that that's every one of us, right? And I don't, how do you come to the full appreciation of what the triune God has done if you don't come through this understanding of yourself, right? We all know how many ways that goes astray. I came out of a religion that has a billion people this very moment that believe that we cooperate with God to be properly suited for this. And even then, we might end up in purgatory for eternity if my family doesn't pray and pay with indulgences to remove me from that state of purgatory. Where's the hope in that? That's precisely the reason. That's the purpose, to keep us in bondage and not freed in Christ, right? And that's just one of the masterful hands of Satan in false religion. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So here comes the need for the promise. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, exclamation point. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But we will be delivered. Look at Romans 8, 16 and 17 along this, this entire theme. Maybe while you're going there, look, look up to Romans 8 and 9. He says in Romans 8 and 9, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Right? So there, there's the promise of the indwelling Spirit in the believer who is walking not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And any, just to make sure we understand, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that is an affirmation of the promise to the believer that through the indwelling Holy Spirit, it is part of the seal that in God's decree makes us the possession of Christ, the slave of Christ. Romans eight sixteen and 17 builds on it. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, when do you think we need that? You feel any kind of attacks lately? Are you really who you say you are? Are you really walking the way you should be? How can you possibly say you belong to Christ when you're living your life like that, when you're doing stuff like that, right? This is when you need that affirmation of the Holy Spirit. And where does that rise up out of? The promises of Scripture that override all of this attack that comes at us each and every day, particularly when we're struggling the most with circumstances, trials, and sin in our life. Talk about when we need the body of Christ wrapped around us, right? All of us. But listen to where he goes. This is really where I want us to turn our attention. Romans 8, 16 again. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with God. Christ. Now, what does that mean? This is all part of this beautiful wrapper called Christ and being in Christ. This is all part of the outworking 
the divine and decreed outworking of this passage in Romans 3, 21 through 26 to transfer us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. And now that we're in the kingdom of light, this is what it means. This is what I want us to see. This is what I want us to be anchored into. First of all, we have the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. As we read the word of God and we see the work of God working out in our life, it is all part of that blessed work of the Holy Spirit to affirm that we are children of God, that God is, in fact, our Father in a tender, fatherly kind of way, not in a condemning wrath kind of way from which we came from, right? And it's the Spirit's work through this battle with the flesh to be constantly affirming us in that through the word of God. So one could say, the more we wane in the word of God, the more we're going to doubt the promises of God, if we even know or remember what they are. And when those trials come and you're in that waning state, you better watch out, right? That's really Paul's whole point with this entire chapter when we get to it. Now let's just look at why. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children, is what I want you to focus on, of God. And if children, Paul logically concludes, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And let's just ask ourselves, fellow heirs with Christ, to what is Christ the heir of? Seriously, what has Christ inherited? This is the participation part. <laughs> Seriously, what has Christ inherited? And what's the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven. Thy kingdom comes, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's a huge part of it that is here, that Revelation 4, 5, and 6. He is the rightful owner of the title of this planet. Heaven right now is looking back here saying, when do we get to come back and restore? He's the heir of all of that, the throne. So let me ask you something. What does it mean when this scripture says that we are co-heirs with Christ? Definitely. A whole new nature, right? Yeah. Sounds like a pretty almost hard to speak part in the kingdom. Really is kind of hard to speak. Because what it goes on to say in so many ways that everything that is Christ's, okay, what is that? Who is the creator of all things? Who is the rightful owner of all those things he has created? Christ. And if we are co-heirs with Christ, and he not only begrudgingly, like the prodigal son's big brother, right? That wasn't the way Christ looked at this. He joyfully received the co-heirs without any reservation to share completely 
completely all that was his for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's just a tiny little look through this lens of what that co-heirs with Christ. But there's an inheritance, right? And I couldn't help because we, we, we get so torn and twisted on the, the big inheritance that ruins the families. But, you know, in tradition, a, a well-cared-for inheritance for the next generations was very, very important and very securing. I've never had any anticipation of that from my father, honestly. But I can't even, I just want to encourage you to think about this, Right? We have an inheritance from a father that we can't even begin to comprehend. We really do. We really, really do. And if we don't, then God's word is not anything in which we can stand. Because this is at the very heart of his promises. And not only will we be co-heirs, but we will reign with him. (laughs) As he restores the kingdom that James talked about. This is all bound up in this beautiful little cradle of Christ that we have as children of God. Right? You look like you want to say something, brother. It's precisely why Paul wrote these chapters. Yeah, that man in the mirror that's fading away. He, he's fading into something far greater. It's just kind of hard to see sometimes, all right? <laughs> it's just kind of hard to see. And fellow heirs with Christ, and here comes the qualifier that Paul is constantly challenging us, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be what? Glorified with him. And then we know so, so well, Romans eight twenty seven and 8, but let's just look at this for a minute as we make a transition. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit, so we have Christ interceding for us, and now we see in this passage we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, isn't that a wonderful promise? As you struggle through your life, your daily life, to know that this God uses it all for good, God is somehow taking our fleshly ways and he is bending it right into his eternal good part of that is as we fail in our walk to be conformed to Christ we can grab hold of the already perfected promise that it's they who finish the work they started not us And in a very surreal way, we are very much active and willing and joyful participants, but it is they who lay every bit of it out in front of us, precisely the way they intended it to be, right? And this passage just speaks to it so beautifully because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, even though as I shared with a brother the other night in a crisis with a 17-year-old son that will impact multiple families for a very long period of time. God's going to use that for good for those that love him. But it is not good at all what is going on in that family right now. It's not good at all. But God uses it for good. And that's a promise that rises up out of this passage. He uses all things for those who love God. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that is to be conformed to Christ. 
right? Now, I want to I want to I want to kind of turn the wheel a little bit and continue on this theme of promises and inheritance. And I want you to look at the blessed Peter, Mr. in the flesh himself, can we say, <laughs> right? Um, look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. I want you to take a look at all these grand truths that Peter pulls into this. But look at the object that he gets to in verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and just right there in that, you realize we treasure Christ, but it is our triune God who is beautifully and inseparably and harmoniously working all this together within the Trinity. All of it, right? Just as everything that has come to pass in the experience of humanity was decreed by the triune God and is now unfolding, right? Peter is so quick to go right to the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his, the Father's, great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, the Father, to a living hope. It's always good that it's, this isn't the hope of the world. What is the hope of the world? Man, I hope, I hope we get fill in the blank. And you know there's at best a 50-50 chance, right? That is not the heavenly hope, is it? Hope in the heavenly sense is the certainty of future events. Absolute certainty because it's God's promise and therefore his name's sake. And Peter just understands that and communicates that so beautifully in this passage. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? So the resurrection of Christ from the Father tells us the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf was accepted by the Father. It was all the work of Christ on our behalf that was accepted and the resurrection took place. And we can now rest the certainty of eternity for our souls on that so much more work of Christ to come out of that tomb. And remember this, the spirit of God who's in you is the spirit who raised Jesus' dead body from that slab in the tomb. So get your head around that for a minute. The Spirit of God who is in you is the very same Spirit who raised Jesus' dead body off of that slab of stone in that tomb. Do we appropriate what we have been given? I don't think so. I think there's a lot in that last tier. <laughs> But look at where Peter goes. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and here it comes, to an inheritance. What kind of inheritance? Not the kind that are here. This one is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. Now, who's going to mess with it there. It's kept. This is a promise of promises. <laughs> when you lose a job and your ability to provide for your family and the, the fear as a man that that comes over you, you can go to these passages and know beyond a shadow of a doubt it's going to be okay. And God's going to work it even here in this mess for your good. At a minimum, so that you'll rely all the more on them and their promises. Always comes back to that.
And this is just part, this is just as a child growing up in a very insecure home, uh, this is a big, beautiful, warm blanket that God just wraps around my soul. And I just want it to be the same for you because that's God's intention, right? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you by what? God's power. <laughs> just in case we had any doubt, right? That someone could unlock that room and steal our inheritance, right? It is by God's power are being guarded through faith. It is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. That faith with which they give us is the very means by which they protect us and guard us and keep us for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Yeah, wondrous when you put it in the context of this is the outpouring of these grand things that God has done as a father and son and spirit to make a way and then include undeserved sinners in that means by which they would glorify the son because that really is the supreme end to all of this is to glorify Christ. Now, coming back from Peter, back to the Pauline, and I'd mentioned the importance of, of, of Ephesians uh, as a co-companion read of, of Romans. But look at this opening of Paul in Ephesians through this lens of these promises and maybe even try to count. And by the way, if you notice, Paul just can't stop in this opening. He just goes on and on. We would have been flunked for the run-on sentence right here. Right? Just look at this. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Familiar passage, but I just want you to think about it in terms of these blessed promises straight out of heaven. And here it comes again from Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see where that's where they begin every time? who has blessed us in Christ. There it is. With what? Just a few things off the shelf. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Have you honestly ever tried to just spend some time meditating in the scriptures about the breadth of what that means, what can it possibly mean for the Spirit of God to move Paul to write that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then how? Because we were somehow better meats in the meat department than somebody else, right? No. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we, like Esau, right, before they ever even came out of the womb, right, it was God, not us. That's the point, right? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, here comes a wondrous promise that we should be both holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for, here's the word I want you to latch on to, adoption. And if you've ever known an orphan who spent significant amounts of time as an orphan and were then adopted by a loving family, 
have a pretty good idea of the magnitude that this passage should mean to us. And we are adopted by God. That word is not a transactional word. That is pure, unconditional love of the Father. And if we doubt that adoption of the Father, look at what he had to do in order to make that adoption happen. It was his beloved son that had to go to that cross in order to justify all of this that we're talking about this morning. It's just wondrous. Predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved Christ. He made us beloved by putting us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of this will, that it was Christ crucified, that was the means by which these glorious truths could be adoption, inheritance, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and every bit of it undeserved by everybody who receives that inheritance. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his promise, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of Time and here it comes to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And this is this blessed hope that still lies ahead of us, which is the reunification of all that was created in the garden and was undone by sin as going to be restored in a way we can't even fully comprehend. But I guarantee you it is not floating around on a cloud with a pair of wings on your back. That is not what reigning with him means. This is all part of this promise, right? In him we have obtained, and here comes the inheritance again in verse 11, an inheritance having, predestined, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, and here's the birth of our understanding of all these glorious things, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, the key to belief. And Abraham believed God. That's what he did. Don't you love the simplicity of that, Nathan? Abraham believed God. That's what he did. And that's why he's the father of the faith. Because he simply believed God. He didn't doubt God in his promises as God. And we find out very quickly that Abraham believed God and it was what? counted to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. A righteousness, as Paul says in Philippians 3, that was not my own. And yet we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and inheritance and an adoption that is as secure as anything you could ever imagine or experience. Right? And believed in him and were, here it comes, sealed with the promise, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the 
guarantee. What's guaranteed nowadays, folks? This is. This is the one thing that is sealed and guaranteed, right? And part of that title deed that gets unfolded, we're in there. <laughs> That's part of the inheritance that belongs to the beloved, right? It's just beautiful how all this packs into this. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until there's the, the uh, not yet part, we acquire possession of it. And again, to the praise of your glory, Nancy, Christ's glory. Always, always, always the second Adam. That's part of the point here. That we would just simply exalt Christ for having received the most uncomprehendable gifts we could imagine and all the more because we are so utterly undeserving of it, right? So let me end here. Go with me to this precious and tender passage in 1 John 4, 18 through 21. And let's look at one of the most wonderful outworkings of all that we've touched on just ever so briefly this morning. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Right to Romans 5, right to Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation which means we were under condemnation, but there is no more condemnation, and it is the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ that sits in between those two things, right? So here we have John picking up on this. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us, and that love was utterly unconditional. And should be true of our love as well. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. It can't be true. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Seen. It is this blessed work of the Holy Spirit in us. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And that is most certainly going to be true in heaven. And is most certainly not nearly where it needs to be now. But the Spirit of God will finish the work and we will realize our adoption and we will be co-heirs with Christ and we will inherit all of these things that have been promised by God.